0: Hello and welcome to The Price of Football The show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game With me, Kevin Day and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire Later in the show we'll hear from Adam Crafton from The Athletic He's going to tell us all about their new podcast Away From Home Which tells the story of how the Ukrainian side Shakhtar Donetsk coping with playing against some of the best sides in Europe without having access to their home ground because the Russian invasion, it's a very moving interview, it's a very long interview, uh, but trust me, I think it's worth every minute. And Kieran, before we get there, pod
1: number 300. Who would have who would have thought that? Eh? Well, Do- n- neither me nor you, yeah. I think. Uh, I mean, su- such was that when we first met, I didn't bother telling you that I was a Brighton fan. I was so convinced it would have <laughs> collapsed on its arse within three or four episodes. It just wasn't worth you taking the mickey out of me uh, by knowing who I supported. So, yes, uh, and th- thanks to the listeners, because we only do it because you listen. So uh, we-, we owe it to you, as-, as well as the lunatics involved in football. Yeah, mainly we owe it to the lunatics
0: involved in football. <laughs> yes. We're here because of the Wrongins, ones, Kieran. We-, we probably should take them out for a drink. Thank the wrong for our continued success. And I, I, like to, I like to think that between us, Kieran, we've we have sort of started maybe a little bit of a rapprochement between the fans of both our respective football clubs. I say I like to think that. I regret to think that that may have happened. To be perfectly honest. But, and also, I know we're not allowed to talk about football, Kieran, but back when we first started, neither of us were doing particularly well in the Premier League. And now now look at the high-flying twos, 7th and 10th, whatever it is. Exactly, it's, yes. Um, unprecedented times, Kieran. Um, <laughs> long may it continue. Let, long may it continue. Well, I would, r- I would raise a glass to that, Kieran. And it said, you don't drink, and it's 10 to 11 in the morning. So <laughs> I can't do that for another 10 minutes. Uh, it's Newsday, Kieran. We have some big news stories to get through before we get to that really wonderful interview from Adam. And first of all, a story about the Reds that's come completely out of
1: the blue. Yes, indeed. Um this was a uh, effectively a, a press release which came from Fenway Sports Group, FSG, who are the owners of Liverpool. That, that came out um, at around about one o'clock, I think it was, on Monday. Uh, I, I was on a train uh, heading from uh, London to Liverpool at the time, and all of a sudden, my phone went berserk. Mm-hmm. Um, so... What what is what the, what they've said is the club's not necessarily for sale, but you know, if anybody's interested, come and have a chat. So they're not trying to explicitly sell it. And and what happens is my understanding is that every few months there's sort of a there's a meeting at FSG and and they they look at the progress of the club and they have a discussion in terms of how much interest there is in Liverpool. Mm. And as, as we all know, you know, there is tire kickers, there is there is there is lunatics, um, there is Lawrence Bassini, there's you know, there's, a lo- there's a lot of people around, you know, with, and there's a lot of
0: football clubs. I like, um, I, like I like the progression of that it's tire kickers, lunatics, Lawrence Bassini.
1: <laughs> Um and that, uh, that that means that uh, as far as Liverpool's owners are concerned, they they feel that there is interest and uh, perhaps perhaps it's time for them to sell and and, the, um, and looking at fsg they're not interested in football okay you know john henry yeah. who is the effectively the head of head of fenway sports group um, he's made his money through knowledge of interest rates exchange rates commodities trading um, to him liverpool's just a commodity, another commodity they bought it for around about £300 million, pounds, was it 12 years ago, they'll be able to sell it, I reckon, for 12 times that amount. Um, so they make a nice financial return. And uh, a bit like in comedy, the secret of investing is to get your timing right. Mm. And uh, I think they, they bought when Liverpool was a distressed asset. I think they, if they are going to sell, to a certain extent, they are selling at peak Liverpool in the sense that – The club has done extremely well um, using their money ball approach. But um, some of their ideas where they thought that the the club would increase its value, such as Project Big Picture, which would have increased their power and money domestically, and the Super League, which would have done exactly the same from a European perspective, those are off the menu at present, at least. Um, so, So where is the future growth going to come from? um so, so why not sell now we've we've got newcastle who are i think genuine contenders for champions league places well yep. 6 into 4 doesn't go particularly well 7 into 4 is more of a struggle um they've seen manchester united get it wrong uh, and start to accumulate large losses get it get it wrong in terms of you know off the pitch decisions um in terms of recruitment so whilst there's a huge amount of interest the pound is weak against the dollar so an american investor could buy could buy liverpool for 400 million dollars less than than the, if if they tried 12 months ago then then it's a good time to sell
0: uh, two things off the back of that Kieran some suggestions are that they saw how much chelsea went for uh, and that gave them some indication of what they would get if they were to sell liverpool now but you, you say it's in some ways peak liverpool but uh, you know, would an investor not look at liverpool this season, and think well. This is this is a mid-table football club. I know they've got a history, but this it's a team. It seems in in transition. So it, it strikes me that it's not the perfect time to sell Liverpool in terms of football, but in terms of the financial climate, you say it is.
1: Um, yeah, I, I I think there is so much interest in football. The um, FSG will be aware that uh, there were two hundred interested parties as far as Chelsea were concerned. And Chelsea was a distressed, yeah, 200. Wow. Chelsea was a distressed asset. Right. You know, Ch- Ch- Chelsea had a lot of baggage going with them. And yet there, there was so much interest. And I know we, we've mentioned it in passing on a couple of occasions. Um, you cannot underestimate the Ted Lasso factor yeah. in terms of turning American investors into people who are intrigued by football and who believe that, if you compare it to the NFL, that the Premier League is watched in far more countries than the NFL, um, and yet it generates less money from the TV deals. So yeah. there must be some gap that, that can be made. Um, now, what they don't realise is that yeah, if you take the average NFL match, it's probably going to be on the television for, what, three, three and a half hours, of which – there's only 11 minutes of actual play so it's 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 a perfect product for advertisements football is different yeah you know, you've got your two 40 minute halves so but even so I, I think the um, the owners will think well hold on yeah you know, why can't we have adverts during the match um, in the sense that you'll you'll have banner ads running at the top and the bottom of your TV screen um, and and they can start to generate more money from that so there is an appetite for it. Um, FSG probably feel we've made an absolute fortune out of this. Let's uh, let's get out and, and and hand over the problems, which I think you're saying. You know, Liverpool are not having the best of seasons. They're, they're still very competitive, are still you? a very good side, of course. Um, they're not having the best of seasons by by the standards that they've set for the last three or four years. It could be expensive to to address some of those problems. Why not? put that cost into somebody else's uh, in-trade rather than ours.
0: Uh, Liverpool, Kieran, is a city that you know very well. It's a city that you love. Uh, you know the Liverpool fans very well. And there's a couple of shots across the bowels of Liverpool owners uh, on Monday evening and yesterday from Anfield rap and spirit of Shankly basically saying to the club that if you do what Newcastle did, if you're looking to sell to a Middle East nation state, there will be a lot more distance from Liverpool fans than there perhaps was from Newcastle fans, uh, which is an interesting one when it comes to finding a buyer for the club, isn't it?
1: Yes. I think you're absolutely right, Kevin there. Um, you know, Liverpool is, is a Republic within a country. You yeah. know, it, it is a very independent minded city. And, and and that's why I love living, you know, not, I don't live there anymore, uh, but I, I, I work there and and I, the fact that I'm prepared to commute is because of of the affection um, people take the Mickey out of me, but it's not done with any malice, um, and it's uh, it, it, it's a it's a great place for a night out as well as anybody who's ever been there will, will testify. Um, so yeah, I think there is this proud sense of Liverpool that. We are, um, we, we do have uh, values. We we do have uh, an awareness of the history and the heritage, not just of Liverpool Football Club, but of Liverpool as a city. Um, and therefore, there would be a lot of resistance um, from the the fans who are extremely well organized. You know, the spirit of Shankly, um, I think, do uh, articulate the the feelings of of, of L four. You know, the, the, the Liverpool City fan base. Um, in in a very good way. Whether the Liverpool international fan base will be as hostile towards uh, a a sovereign wealth fund acquiring the club, I'm not so sure. But it's those Liverpool fans who who turn up week in, week out, and who have been doing so for generations. Um, They they are very good at organising themselves, and I think they would make it very clear to the the present owners that uh, they would... Be, have huge reservations with regards to um, a, a new owner who, who comes with baggage that uh, that doesn't reflect the values of the city.
0: Yeah, Liverpool struggling to compete with Man City on and off the pitch this season and Man City's latest accounts are an illustration of why Kieran.
1: Yes uh, th- these came out um, a couple of days ago it's uh it's a good set of results for City. It's it's record profits. It's record revenues. It's the second highest revenues um, in the history of the Premier League. You know, when I put these out, there's going to be fingers pointed by fans of other clubs. Um, you know they will point out that uh, you know, more than half of City's revenue comes from commercial income, um, and therefore they will start to say critical things with regards to some of City's sponsorship arrangements. And, and I've got to be honest, City haven't always covered themselves in glory over the course of, especially of the last 12 months, in my opinion, in signing up with some of the uh, yeah, crypto-related organisations. And, and, and there's been a couple of things where they've had to uh, quickly shelve those, those, those relationships. Um, I, I think what intrigues me is that the wage bill, didn't go up. You know, the wage bill was effectively the same as where it was in in 2020. It's now 30 million pounds less uh, a year than Manchester United. You, you can point out, of course, that that Manchester United does have more employees. Um, they also signed Cristiano Ronaldo, who who came at a at a huge financial cost, um, and that didn't uh, that didn't manifest itself in in terms of qualifying for the Champions League. So. City are, I think they're in an interesting place. Their their wages are now only fifty eight percent of revenue. And what we're also seeing with City is when, uh, when when Sheikh Mansour acquired the club, it it was a bit shambolic in terms of academy and development. Um, whereas now we are seeing City generate more money from player sales. Than it is through ticket sales, so that um, they do appear to to have a a pathway, um, and even if they. Even if players don't break in, you know, and then it is difficult to break into the city first team, but Phil Foden's shown it's, it can be done. Um, they are now starting to sell players in, in a similar way to what we've seen perhaps over the last five to six years in respect of Chelsea. Um, the academy players look really good. I think four of them went to Southampton uh, over the course of the summer, who, who'd barely played for City, and yet that they managed to get around about forty million for those. So the the City trading model is an interesting one. Um, they're only generating half as much money from ticket sales as Manchester United and Spurs. Um, I th- again, that will be used by the critics to say, well, you go, you're struggling to sell out the ground. I, th- I think it's actually more a representation of, of, of city's fan base. It, it still is very local that they don't have the same um, international stroke tourist appeal um, that, that some of the other clubs have, but, uh, that these, these results are are pretty solid. I, I, Kieran, you are, are, are old enough to
0: remember Roy Castle, of blessed memory, and record breakers, uh, and City broke a record, didn't they, with their latest accounts?
1: Yes, and, and that record is that they, they now have the first squad in the history of, of English football that has cost more than a billion pounds um, wow. yeah They signed they signed Jack Grealish. Um, they still, they, they wouldn't say that they're, they're spending huge sums. Apart from, uh, you know, Grealish, what they what, what they have tended to do is to do a lot of uh, a lot of spending in that forty to fifty million pound area. Um, and those players have have stayed at the club for a number of years and, and have continued to deliver. So um this this does put them significantly ahead uh of of the rest of the clubs although I suspect with with Chelsea's spending over the course of the summer um that 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 Chelsea might might be catching up but a, a billion pounds I, mean, I, I I can remember the first 100,000 pound player uh yeah. way back when yeah when we first fell in love with football and we thought that was uh, a crazy sum and then of course Trevor Francis uh, going from Birmingham to Forest and so on, but a billion pounds of of spending on football players is is an incredible sum.
0: Yeah, and, and interesting as well that you say you know, critics use the the lower ticket revenue than Man United and, and Tottenham as a stick to beat them with. But Old Trafford and, and whatever Tottenham Stadium is called now are considerably bigger than Man City's ground, aren't they?
1: Y- y- yes, they are. I mean, uh, but uh, I mean, both of those clubs generate twice as much money as as city do from ticket sales Spurs' capacity is what 7 or 8000 higher united's is around about 20 um what both of those clubs are able to do is to sell individual match tickets and sponsorship packages at higher prices than city um that that puts them in a slightly different position up I, I i don't understand the criticism if if city are selling tickets at cheaper prices mm surely as a football fan you'd welcome that but such is the tribal nature of of football um that it's used as, as a means of uh, of pointing fingers and you know that's the world we live in today yeah we don't often talk about fulham on this podcast kieran which is
0: a, a good sign for the most part um there's a story this week which is quite bizarre and it was initially brought to our attention by fulham fans with the club going mm. no nothing to see here walk away but it turns out the fans were absolutely right
1: yes so this is um a sponsorship arrangement that fulham had with titan capital markets which is a company which is involved in what's known as uh, cfds which is a form of uh derivative speculation it, it's it's a very very high risk uh, I, i'm 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 reluctant to even call it investment, because it is glorified gambling. Um, And the more that you looked into this, um, the more it looked very, very suspect. And 10 minutes worth of due diligence would have quickly revealed that things were not right. So... I think the Fulham supporters trust they they brought it to the attention of the club around about a month ago. Yeah. They were effectively dismissed. There was a story in the Athletic um uh, about it uh, a few weeks ago and nothing was done. And then Nick Harris of the Mail on Sunday and Nick's one of these sort of, you know, the the investigative journalists who who really do get stuck in. He he broke this as a story over the course of the weekend and um yeah that there were so-called employees that didn't actually appear to work there. There were photographs of people who appear to have just been randomly picked from the internet <laughs> rather than the actual faces of the employees themselves. <laughs> the whole thing stank the place out. Um, and then you've got to look at the, the company itself um, because it looks like uh, at the Titan are being investigated by Australian authorities to uh, license related, you know, i.e. they are they are selling products which perhaps they shouldn't be selling. All in all, um, unfortunately, it's it's a story that we've run in so many similar times over the oh. course of the last twelve months. Yeah. Somebody offers you a check, you say thanks very much. I'm not going to bother doing due diligence, bank the check, and uh, then we will use the club's badge to legitimise and normalise the the behaviour of the uh, of, of the of the commercial partner. It, it, it's almost. Laughable,
0: Kieran, to an extent. I mean, this idea that they just took pictures off the internet, of club employees, you know, so suspicions first raised me that like Kermit the Frog was their catering manager. Um, but they and they're called Titan. It's like if you're going to make a company up, I, that's the sort of name I'd go for, call it Titan. But mm-hmm. there's a serious aspect here, Kieran. And because we saw on social media and we saw when Fulham fans got in touch with us, they're seriously angry about this, and football clubs. Have got to learn, blinded by the cheque or not, as you say. Football fans, at at the very least, are suspicious of crypto, of socios, of fan tokens, non fungible, fungible, whatever. Football fans don't like them. Clubs need to to start to bear that in mind because week after week we hear a story of a of a club in the Premier League, in the Championship, discovering that the deal they thought was going to make them a fortune wasn't what they thought it was. And they're at risk of alienating their fans. For they're basically they're getting scammed, like the Simpsons monorail guy. Basically, is, is just yes. is, is exactly what, how it seems. And again, we go to we go to Italy for this week's uh, dose of reality regarding a crypto company and into Milan.
1: Yes, um, so. Into they they've confirmed that they are replacing crypto company Digital Bits as their as their main shirt sponsor. That's a strange thing to do in uh, in in October, stroke November, isn't yeah, it? Very. Um, and, and then you you look a little bit further, and they say, oh, by the way, uh, yes, we, we signed this multi year deal, which was worth a hundred million euro. So you know all, when when they announce it, all big deal, you know, all big numbers, and people get excited. Um, and the the trouble is, if you announce the deal, it helps if your crypto partner actually bothers to pay you. And this this is this is quite critical in the world of yeah. Uh, sponsorship.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, But they haven't, so they they owe uh, Digital Bits owe Inter Milan seventeen million euro, and Inter have said uh, enough's enough. Uh, we've got no idea when this is uh, going to take place, if ever. So so they've ditched them. Um, uh, where they go uh, for the rest of the season, we, we don't know. Um, and I, I've got to mention, um, ju- just in passing here, um, hats off to to Derby County, who haven't had a shirt sponsor uh, for this season because of the uh, you know, one of the legacy issues following the administration. So, so what they've agreed to do is to uh, effectively donate the, the sponsorship space to NSPCC for the rest of this season, um, in order to uh, in, in order to highlight that particular uh, extremely good cause. So so fair play to them for that. Yeah, uh, you know, and uh, just yeah, you know, just to show that we are completely even handed and independent in in our analysis here. Yes, when you when you put out the uh, contents list
0: for this pod, if you mention Derby, can you put a little smiley face next to it, yes. just to relax <laughs> anxious? do uh, you know? <laughs> This is probably. I, I was out quite late last night. I was at a wrap party for a TV show, so this is probably an indication of why. But when you said, uh, "Just like to mention Justin Passing here," I assumed you were talking about another of your cricket mates. Uh, he's, never <laughs> he's never mentioned Justin Passing before, but it's just because uh, it, I, you know, I can imagine you and Justin Passing having the night out on the quinoa and the non-alcoholic sherry i'm not sure if this is good news kieran or bad news for coventry fans that mike ashley is is i was going to say hovering but sharks don't hover do they 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 circle (laughs) so mike mike Ashley is circling shall we say
1: yes um now this is in respect of not necessarily coventry city football club itself at present although it could be a precursor to uh, a potential bid. But he is, uh, by all accounts, uh, interested in the CBS arena, or the RICO, as uh, we refer to it, um, which went into administration um the, the company involved, which is called arena Coventry limited um it went into administration uh, and this was connected to what we 've seen in respect to wasp rugby um they are effectively the 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 you know, sort of the the original owner of the stadium. there was a genuine risk um a couple of weeks ago that instead of going into administration, they would have gone into liquidation yeah. and if that had been the case all contracts would have been null and voided, all employees would have lost their jobs, and Coventry City would have found themselves homeless. So it it does look that we're in a slightly better position before. Now, the administrators of Arena Coventry, they are duty obliged to um, find that the highest bidder for the stadium. Mike Ashley's name has been linked. Um, Whether that would then result in him buying the club. Uh, you know, the current owners, Sisu, they have attempted to buy the stadium themselves. Historically, it looks as if that, that ship may have sailed, but you, you, ne- you, ne- you never say never in terms of of uh, business. I mean, Mike Ashley, as we know, he's uh, he's, he's not popular in Newcastle um, for his period of ownership, but Newcastle have moved on. Um, he's not popular... In Glasgow, with half of the city, because uh, Sports Direct ended up having a, a dispute with Rangers Football Club, um, and in Rangers' accounts, which came out earlier uh, this week, uh, I think that cost the club around about six million pounds to settle. So he is quite litigious. Um, he, uh, he 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 knows it. He knows the value of a pound. Does Mike Ashley? Um, he he would not be the worst owner in the world. He would get uh, the club's finances into a, in a fairly straight, uh, straight and narrow operation. Um, but he's not the best owner in the world, as well. You've only got to look at the, the lack of spending of infrastructure at, at Newcastle to to evidence that. But he's better than no owner. Yeah, quite litigious. You say?
0: I, I, I think legally, I'm all right with referring to him as a shark, aren't I? Sharks. Yes. Are, <laughs> sharks are a magnificent beast. Um, very effective what they do and um, what would be in it just purely from a fi- financial business point of view kieran what would be in it just to own the stadium and not the club
1: well um he'd effectively be the landlord Um the the arena it is used it is multi-purpose uh, activity so you've got you've got lots of hospitality events taking place there as well as um we yeah we've had wasps and coventry city playing playing sport there um so i, I think that he would be looking to to monetize the stadium as much he, as much as he can, um, and, and Coventry would therefore just have to be a tenant. Um, you know, I think they have an existing rental agreement. He, they presumably would be able to to utilize that to if he tried to to put up the rent. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's that's where he's looking at. You know, he he was interested in Derby County. There was no yeah. doubt about that, and and that for whatever reason. Didn't didn't uh, proceed. Um, he he seems to like the kudos of owning a football club, which yeah. which many uh, high net worth individuals get a kick from.
0: Yeah, and uh, obviously better a Michael Ashley owned football club than no football club at all. But um, which is not a potential problem for Coventry at the moment. But obviously with all the uncertainty about the stadium, it, it is so. This is not necessarily bad news for Coventry,
1: is it? No no I, it, it's it's not um Sisu, who themselves are a hedge fund um, trying to work out their motives for buying the club it has always been a challenge and uh I, I think they they could have walked away on a few occasions and really left the club in the lurch so so th- they seem to sort of come round to sort of running the club at what they consider to be an acceptable level of loss and if, if you talk to you know people that we've met such as Andy Holt he says this is what I'm prepared to put into the club this year we're not going to go a penny above that and 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 the club cuts its cloth accordingly um that does appear to have been the same approach taken by Coventry I think I think Sisu felt that they could uh, monetize the the, the the player trading market to perhaps do a little bit more of a successful way than they've actually done, but. Uh, I can't really see what's in it for them to, to be long-term owners going forwards. Yeah, three more stories before that interview, Kieran, that brilliant interview, um, two of which I think
0: I've got to read out, and I think the correct response is just to go, "No, oh, dear, really. Um, the, the first one, I, I very much enjoyed the Super League attempting to take the moral high ground this week. Organisers of the Super League trying to be haughty just made me laugh a lot.
1: Yes. Um, The
0: (laughs) the Super League. We could leave it there,
1: Kieran, if you want. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The the Super League, when they initially announced it, they were so arrogant that they didn't even bother to have a proper press release. Um, And they didn't have anybody that was prepared to talk to journalists. So now what they're doing is that they're going to use a lobbying organisation. So this has been set up, and this is called A22. Which uh, which is the London to Eastbourne Road, yes. as far as I'm concerned. Um, but uh, this this is uh, this is effectively controlled by a, a German guy, and you know, I'm not saying that he appears to be just trying to uh, parrot the views of Florentino Perez in in a way with a with a hundred thousand dollars smile and a smart suit, because that would be very harsh. Um, but uh, they they've been coming back with what I think the technical phrase is. The same old crap, Mm. um, in the sense that football's dying. Young people are not interested in football. We need somebody to save uh, the game. Um, You know, the the big clubs aren't playing each other enough times. Okay, well, hold on. You, you're the big clubs that insisted on being seeded in the group stages of the Champions League, so that you didn't play each other. And then you've got Perez coming out and saying, "Well, uh, Liverpool have not." Uh, Liverpool have not played against Real Madrid many times in the Champions League. Well, you know, Liverpool didn't qualify for the Champions <laughs> League for quite a few t- occasions because um, it used to be the champions. Yeah, you know, and, and Liverpool have got a fantastic record in Europe. We're, we're not denying that. Um, so you know, the, 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 the way that's been used to to justify um, what what's effectively going to be a power grab and a concentration of decision making and money in the hands of fewer and fewer clubs um is is done with uh with sort of the oh, we we, no, we we're doing it for you guys we're yeah. doing you know fans are stakeholders too um and by all accounts a22 went to a meeting with uefa earlier this week um and uh, seferin who is the the head of uefa uh, he, he's a feisty bugger i think it's it's fair to say um, well Loads of clubs decided that they were going to send delegates along to this meeting. And the, 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 guy from uh, a 22 who thought he was going to have sort of a, you know, a bit of a, bit of a chin wag over a coffee and a, uh, and a croissant or whatever it's going to be. Got two or three hours of serious grilling from first, you know, Portuguese clubs, yeah you know, this, this season, we've got more clubs from Portugal qualifying for the knockout phases yeah. of the champions league than from Spain. That's great. And you know, I, I don't, I don't see the problem with that. I, yeah. You know, when when Steaua Arrest, when Porto, when Ajax, um, or when Nottingham Forest and Aston Villa all won the uh, European Cup, I I, ne- I never said to myself at the time, "Oh, it's been a terrible year this year," because it wasn't what run by Real Madrid or Manchester United or, or Bayern Munich. Um, well, I, sh- I should take Bayern Munich out of there because, of course, they didn't—they weren't part of Super League. Yeah. Um, but there is this uh, arrogance and conceit. Amongst the owners of Juventus, Barcelona, Real Madrid, in particular, that if their club isn't in the competition, then the competition's not worth having. Um, and of course, yeah, Barcelona have now been knocked out, uh, as and Manchester United didn't qualify um, for the Champions League. But that means that other clubs can do that. And I, I'm not, I don't really care about global TV ratings for one season because they'll they'll, they'll bounce back if they have to, uh, but. Football is great because it's uncertain, and that's what these people don't want. They want to completely de-risk, guarantee themselves all of the money. They've extracted more and more concessions from both UEFA and the Premier League over the years to try to ensure that, Um, but their greed knows no bounds. The Super League will be
0: very upset that you even mention Eastbourne in the same sentence is the Super League here because <laughs> those people are too old to watch football in the Super League. They're, it's full of legacy fans towns like Eastbourne. But they're, they're also slightly thin-skinned. There was a, a video got gave them the hump this week, didn't it?
1: Yes. Uh, A22 uh, are very cheesed off with uh, Tebas and La Liga. L- L- the thing about La Liga, Te- uh, Tebas, who's Otevis, who, who's head of La Liga, he... he is able to fall out with everybody. So he he falls out with Real Madrid and Barcelona. He falls out with UEFA. He makes accusations against uh, PSG and Manchester City in particular. Um, And uh, he is effectively behind the uh, video created by La Liga, which um, made various accusations in relation to Super League wanting to be there uh, purely out of self-interest. So therefore, um, what A22 are trying to do is to say, "Oh no, it's, it's now going to be a more open formatted competition." But there's so much money being guaranteed to the big clubs, is that you know, if if you've got ten million pounds and you're up against somebody that's got ten pounds, you might say, "Well, you're both going to enter the competition, but there's only going to be one winner." So it, it's it's very uh, you know it, it's very sneaky coming from Super League, as mm. as has been the case from day one. The first joke
0: I ever wrote for They Think It's All Over was Roy Keane could start a fight in an empty room. No, I couldn't, said Roy Keane, in an empty room. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This penultimate story, Kieran, um, the, the last story we're going to talk about is a, a good news story, I think, but the penultimate mm. one about Qatar and England fans I think is one of the most dispiriting stories we've ever we've had to talk about it's just my heart sank when i saw this
1: yes and uh it's not just england fans you know this has been the case for quite a few countries who are qualifying for the fifa uh 2022 world cup which is starting soon i i I just I i don't even know the start date which is unheard of for me uh, yeah, normally I've got my, my wall chart up, and and yeah, you know, the Baroness just disappears for four weeks. The twi- um, yeah, the twentieth.
0: Yeah, I, I'm all confused when when I'm a celebrity, to get me out of his I get confused about dates anyway. I'm twenty
1: four hours behind, basically. Right, <laughs> it's soon, Kieran. Yeah, it's starting soon. Yeah. So so what's happened here is that uh, forty England fans are being paid by a Qatari authority um, in order to uh, attend the World Cup. And they, they are being encouraged, Kevin. They're being encouraged to deliver positive messages about the experience of being there um, and to sing certain songs. Now, I, I might be singing certain songs. Um, I, I suspect uh, I, I might be singing the odd Tom Robinson song, just to be a little bit scary. <laughs> but I suspect, I suspect these 40 England fans won't be doing that. Um, and also to report critical social media posts, i.e. Big Brother, is watching you, so so it, it, it's it's very dystopian. Um, I think at least one of these fans is is attached to the the England band, who uh, yeah, amongst England fans uh, who both attend matches and who don't attend matches, I think it's fair to say uh, deliver a a mixed response mm. um, to to their activities. And they've now become very defensive, saying, "Well, well, we were going anyway, so the fact that we're now being given a bit of pocket money and better accommodation um, is a pure coincidence." And and why not? Yeah, you know, and they, they immediately moved to to what about battery. You know, uh, the broadcasters are going there, yeah, um, and they so. So why can't we go there? Well, yeah, you know, I, I think the broadcasters are going to try to be uh, objective as opposed to being a um, a Lord hawhaw in respect of the the organisers. So, um, is it disappointing? Yes, I mean, it, it, it could be a fantastic tournament. I, I don't want to prejudge, and I'll, I'll I, you know, for the sake of transparency, I've, I've been to Qatar and, and I've spoken to people. You know, I've, I've given talks about football and finance um, there. Um, so, you know, could that accusation be made of me? Well, I've, I've not all. I would say I've not come back and said Qatar is the greatest place in the world, and its uh, human rights record is, is good and so on. Uh, you know, I'm I'm, but. I don't think it looks good for those, those fans. You know, if, 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 if all, if the other England fans are there having a great time, I'm sure they'll report back accordingly. And as, as somebody that's been to um, a couple of world cups where there were horror stories beforehand, you know, um, and I, I, in particular, I had a fantastic time in, in South Africa. Um, yeah. Just let people speak for themselves. They don't need to be encouraged. Uh,
0: I've, I have did a couple of gigs in Doha, uh, and along with the other comics who were with me, we all refused to go if we had to sign, as requested, uh, an agreement not to talk about uh, Middle Eastern politics or their attitude to homosexuality. And all of us did routines about Qatar's attitude to homosexuality, uh, liberalism, etc. And the guy from the Qatari government who was shadowing us went, yes, and everyone ignores it. They all... Which is why I'm very disappointed to learn that they've managed to find 40 England fans who wouldn't take the piss. Mm. Um, uh, For for younger viewers, Tom Robinson uh, was a brilliant singer who I uh, was a big fan of. He's sang an anthem called Glad to Be Gay. Lord Haw Haw, just Google him. Propaganda, uh, Germany, (laughs) (laughs) etc. How did we get to three hundred episodes, Kieran? We're dropping references, <laughs> dropping references to Lord Haw Haw, Tom Robinson in the same show, <laughs> which is so down with the kids. <laughs> I thought I was, I was, I was reluctant to even do the uh, monorail guy from The Simpsons. I thought the house a bit old. took that <laughs> about Lord Haw um, We saw Kieran an on-pitch protest this week from footballers against the effects of gambling harm, which is probably I wouldn't say long overdue, but it was encouraging to see.
1: Yes, uh this, this is mainly at non league level. Yeah. Um uh yeah, we did have the FA Cup taking place last weekend. Uh, so it, it was I think there was a lot of clubs involved and, and did this by, by wearing yellow laces. And you know, it it's just to highlight uh you know, we've had people from the big step on the show. We we both gamble as well, but we're also fully aware that we know people uh, within friends and family groups, for whom gambling has been a horrendous experience, mm-hmm. and, and there's not enough being done to uh, reduce the the amount of damage which is being done by the industry. Um, you know, we we refuse to take gambling adverts on the show, and it's not because we're we're, we're virtue signaling. It's just that you, you've got to have some form of moral compass with, when with regards to the impact of uh, advertising and marketing. Of gambling products um, to the to the general population, and and when it comes to football, you know the marketing spend by the big uh, by the, by the big gambling companies is absolutely incredible. Um, we've seen the impact that uh, a ban on smoking adverts has has had upon that particular practice. Mm. Um, and I think there's scope for doing the same with regards to uh, sport as well and, and and a much broader issue in, in terms of the marketing of the industry because it only ever shows you the good bits. Um, you, you'll get the occasional, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. Ray, Ray Winston would come in, yeah, and, and remember, gamble responsibly. Well, yeah, if, if you're already up to your ears in despair and misery, um, that's that's not going to uh, change people's behaviour. See, that's the thing. You, you say we both gamble, I, and I always make this distinction, but it's a false one
0: because I always say, well, I don't gamble. I'll, I'll put a tenner on a horse at Cheltenham you know, uh, on a Saturday or where, whatever, but there is gambling. you, know, it's, mm. I, you know, I say I have a bet, but it, it's, it's just the, the different end of the spectrum because all the people that are, as you say, taking their own lives or in despair because of gambling debt started off by having a tenner on a race at Cheltenham, basically. Um, so it's an issue that needs to be dealt with. And um, talking talk of issues that need to be dealt with, uh, uh, we know, Kieran, that football fans will moan a lot about, you know, Palace fans were moaning about the price of beer at West Ham on Sunday. We'll moan about queues to get into the ground. We'll moan about defeats to local rivals. We we don't know how lucky we are, Kieran, because, you know, in, mm. in Ukraine, they're trying to carry on as normal with their football in almost impossible circumstances. And Adam Crafton from The Athletic has done a wonderful podcast about that. And we caught up with him to chat about his experience out there and about football out there. I'm aware that you've already listened to us for 40 minutes and this is a long interview. If you want to go and make a cup of tea and come back to it, uh, because it's worth it. This interview is worth it. Uh, Again, of all the interviews we've ever done, Kieran, this is one I wish we didn't have to do. This episode of The Price of Football is brought to you by the AI-powered workspace, Notion. What if you had access to tomorrow's tools today? In Notion, you do. It's the AI-powered workspace where any team can turn
1: ideas into action. My career is sort of a bit like being a butterfly, and I'm always jumping from project to project. So therefore, Notion helps me from summarising meetings notes and automatically generating action items to getting answers to any question in seconds. If you can think it, you can make it. And Notion is for everyone, whether you're a Fortune 500 company or a freelance football finance lecturer.
0: You can try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash priceoffootball. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash priceoffootball and start turning ideas into action. That's notion.com slash priceoffootball.
1: (laughs)
0: Adam, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. I have to say right at the top, I, I normally enjoy researching questions for our guests. I look forward to doing it. I, I have to say I found it difficult this time. I, I I really do. Some of the stuff I read around it and listening to parts of the pod were very, very difficult. And I, I really admire you for doing it, and we'll get into the reasons why you did so later on. But before we talk specifically about Shakhtar Donetsk and your brilliant podcast, can we get a little bit of context for our listeners? Firstly, pre-invasion, can you give us a sense of where Ukrainian football was in terms of quality, its place in Europe, the number of people that went to games and so on? Yeah, well, I, I suppose when we talk about pre-invasion, I suppose this is one of
2: the things that people at Shakhtar Donetsk continually said to me, that because every time I would say before the war, they would always answer which war because yeah. for them, they've not been able to use their stadium in 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 uh, in Donetsk in the Donbass region, the Donbass arena since 2014, yeah. um when Russia cri- uh, annexed Crimea and <laughs> yeah. had the incursions into the Donbass into the Donbass region. So you've got kind of their own their own kind of unique experience of eight years of conflict. Um but you also then have the full the full invasion in February this year. Um and it's probably better to work backwards from there, just in in the context of of, of your question. Um so I mean Ukrainian football was in was in a pretty good place. Um, you know, bearing in mind that they'd been in part of their country had been invaded by a neighbor almost a decade ago. Um, you know, we would often see Shakhtar and Dinamo Kiev and Dnipro minus one in in the Champions League or Europa League. Um very, very good at uh identifying talent um Shakhtar in particular was was almost like a like a landing spot for brazilian talent yeah, in particular yeah. that they would then try and develop and sell on so you think of players such as uh Fernandinho or Thread um or Willian um people may have different views of Thread depending how much they have to watch him um, <laughs> but but um but the general point is you know it became a very very good identif- uh, talent identification uh, hub, but also very good at negotiating and selling players on. Um, and even despite having been uprooted, you know, particularly for Champions League games, attendance would be very good, whether they were playing in uh, Kharkiv uh, initially when they moved out of Donetsk, or then into Kyiv, or then Lviv. Um, and obviously, the Ukrainian national team, apart from this tournament, we often see them at major international tournaments, mm. um, usually come up against England at some point. Um, either in qualification or or at the tournaments themselves and even if you go back to 2012 i mean how crazy is it that just over a decade ago ukraine was hosting the european championship i mean imagine saying Mm. 10 years ago that this would be where the country is now
0: yeah and secondly adam when this invasion happened what was the initial response of the ukrainian fa and uefa
2: Yes. Yeah, so the, the initial response, so the invasion starts February the 24th, uh, this year and very, very quickly, the Ukrainian league was suspended, um, until the end of this season. Uh, sorry, until the end of last season. So between February and, and May, uh, from UEFA's point of view, um, well, there was this massive complication that the champions league final was supposed to be in St. Petersburg. Yeah. Um, and as a result, that kind of forced UEFA's hand very, very quickly into making a decision about both the the location of, of that event which moved to Paris, um, but also around the sponsorship of, U, of UEFA's major competition, the Champions League with Gazprom, um, which is a Russian company, uh, and also a decision about the, the participation of Russian teams in in the Champions League, Europa League as well. And and I think really what happened was the The mere fact of the location of the Champions League final created a moment for UEFA, which in turn created a moment for FIFA. Because if you remember, um, when you go back to, to that time, FIFA initially did not want, or did not appear to want, I should say, to 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 ban Russia from competing in the qualification for the World mm. Cup. The initial suggestion was kind of that uh, Olympic suggestion wasn't it of oh well if you maybe play in a different colour and have a different name then you can all you can all come along, um, but there was a massive backlash to that and the problem that FIFA and Russia had was that their qualification game was going to be against Poland, yeah, and Poland had become as a as a country that bordered Ukraine, it had become this humanitarian hub, it had become the major gateway uh, for refugees leaving Ukraine, so I think Robert Lewandowski was amongst the players. Who simply said we will not play Russia, and that created it almost forced FIFA into the decision in a lot of ways. And you know, I think it might be something that you guys touch on later on. But I think that tension between FIFA and Ukraine has only really intensified. Uh,
0: we will be talking about FIFA later on, but just the the bitter irony of FIFA trying to argue at the time that football was above politics when they're <laughs> when they're selling us football as a way to get access to. Guitar is just ludicrous. Um, in terms of some context for Shakhtar Donetsk itself, I mean, obviously, there's a link uh, with Kieran's club, Brighton, um, mm. with their new manager. But could you just tell us a little bit about their history? Um, where Donetsk actually is within Ukraine, as well as as a, just an indication of how far they've had to move. I mean, there's certainly a, a brief research into their history. It's it's almost like a classic Stalinist industrial. Football side, wasn't it? When they were formed back in the '30s, I think, wasn't it? Exactly, and you
2: know, then the I suppose their net their nickname I don't know, if nickname's the right name, but they sort of call themselves the Miners, which mm. I suppose gives a, a, an impression of the the industry that's big um, in Donetsk. It's, it's very far east in Ukraine. Um, you know, it's not kind of the place that you know twenty years ago you'd have been thinking I'm going to go on holiday to Donetsk or something like that. Um, but you know, very big me- metallurgical industries. Um, their owner. René Akhmetov is one of, well, according to most people, the richest man in Ukraine. Um, So it's actually quite an interesting thing where we're talking about Shakhtar at the moment as a massive underdog story, but they're also owned by one of the richest, most powerful businessmen uh, in Eastern Mm -hmm. Europe. And he is one of those businessmen that did very, very well out of the kind of fallout of the Soviet Union and the way that businessmen did in between Ukraine and Russia, um, in the nineties in particular, he's actually from a working class background, but did incredibly well in the metallurgical industries. There's been plenty of very interesting conversation around, around him over the past 15, 20 years, as you can imagine. Um, and there's also even last year, president Zelensky, uh, of Ukraine actually stated that the, the Ukrainian intelligence services had information to say that the Russians were trying to lure Akhmetov into a plot to overthrow Zelensky. And uh, Zelensky didn't actually provide any evidence for this. And I should say that uh, Akhmetov completely denied it. He said it wasn't true. He said he was committed to a free Ukraine, a, d- a democratic Ukraine. And very much to be fair, since the full invasion, those relationships between Zelensky and Akhmetov have, have been far, far better. And Akhmatov's given something like, across all his companies, between 80 to 100 million US dollars to the humanitarian effort. And what's also quite interesting is he had quite a big media empire as well. And one of the things that Zelensky kind of came in on, on saying was that he wanted to clamp down on these very rich and wealthy, powerful businessmen. And Akhmatov has subsequently reduced his media profile so that relationship okay. at the moment is pretty good. I think it's one of those that over time might become more interesting.
0: It's interesting because knowing what we know, for example, about Roman Abramovich and his mm. uh, the wealth he made from aluminium, I think it was initially that he mm. got involved with. As soon as you hear uh, you know Russian sounding name invested in metal you do you start to twitch a little bit don't you because then you start to think oligarch which again is now a word that's associated only with negative connotations isn't it
2: yeah and you know it's one of those things when when we were making our podcast you know do you use the word oligarch right from a legal perspective um do you use that word because you know, we've seen from a lot of those people who have been called oligarchs over the years, particularly, I, I mean, her pre-sanctions, pre-Russian sanctions, um, you know, the, the legal response to that was very, very strong um, against publications, against individuals who were writing um, about them. So, therefore, you know, we we would refer to Akhmatov as as a very rich and powerful businessman, um, which I think is probably the fair thing to say at the mm-hmm. moment. And it's interesting, you know, speaking to people at the club, about him you know they only really have incredibly positive things to say because I suppose from their perspective they would simply say well the club's not been able to go home for eight years his investment has kept the club going um it was actually Dario Cerner the club's director of football and the former Croatia international defender and, and he said to me that you know at any point since the full invasion in february march akhmatov could have left ukraine and he stayed in ukraine the whole time and he right. he was calling him a true patriot for that reason oh, okay. saying the country need more people like that so you know I, I think at the moment i think it would probably be a little bit unfair to kind of speak you know given what the contribution has been to the war effort but like i say it's one of those that over the next few years, is definitely one that's interesting to track how mm. his relationship with the country uh, develops.
0: The domestic season in Ukraine restarted in August. Adam, what was the thinking behind that decision, and was there any resistance to it? Bearing in mind that it's not that long since uh, mm. a Shakhtar game was was delayed for about an hour because of air raid warnings. Yeah, I mean that was only like last
2: week, last weekend in yeah. in, in Lviv, which is the very, very west of Ukraine, which is meant to be kind of the safe zone um, yeah. in a lot of ways and that match was delayed for about an hour and a half um i think there was some resistance uh, it was a decision basically taken by the ukrainian government and they it, it was from a kind of visibility slightly po- propaganda point of view using spores at right. all to say yeah. you know we will go on we're not going to be cowed we're you know, we. why should our, all of our industries be hit just because the Russians are deciding to do X, Y, Z? Um, there was then discussions about should this competition take place, should it all take place in Poland, for example, or in a different neighbouring country or across several neighbouring countries. Um, the, the clubs that were competing in Europe, like Shakhtar Donetsk, like Dinamo Kiev, were also arguing if you want us to compete in Europe in the midweek, And then be back in Ukraine at the weekend, given there's no commercial flights in and out of the country, that is like borderline impossible um, because you're having to drive in and out of the country, go over borders. And, you know, when we talk about modern day football and we talk about uh, recovery and nutrition and diet and gym, all of which is so micromanaged these days by European football clubs. They would. They were sort of saying, "How on earth are we meant to do this?" But that is what happened in the end. The Ukrainian Premier League resumed in Ukraine. Many of the matches in Kiev and Lviv, and then the clubs that were competing in Europe have basically just lived on a bus
0: for most of the first few months of the season. Was their participation in the Champions League always going to happen? Were they obviously they were keen to take part? But were you for putting pressure on them to take part in the Champions League? I no I think they wanted to I
2: think they really wanted to because I mean one that just you know f- from Shakhtar's point of view uh the Ukrainian Premier League has returned but there's no fans in the stadium yeah. so match day revenue is obviously massively hit television deals I think have been hit as a a bit, it's a bit like covid football but it sounds horrendous but like with air raid sirens right yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah it's like almost an even more nightmarish version of covid football um so from a financial point of view being in the Champions League was a bit of a, like, I mean, they're owned by a really rich man, so they're not going to go out of business. But I think it was a massive help in terms of cash flow um, and making sure that the club can can be kind of profitable in some way and, and continue to function and continue to pay staff and players, right?
0: Yeah, well, I want to come on to that in a moment. But uh, a, a question that I think will occur to a lot of our listeners, are the players exempt from military service?
2: Yes, for now. Right. Um, for now. Um, so, actually what happened at the start of at the start of um this year following the full invasion they a couple of the players were part of the uh, like territorial defense mm. which is almost so they would wear military uniform but it was very much more about kind of volunteering humanitarian assistance transferring medical supplies to elderly people vulnerable people helping to get food in and out of uh, villages that were occupied and things like that so some of the players were involved with that um you know, one of them, uh, Victor Kornienko, twenty-three-year-old defender who had a sort of a six-month-old baby at the time. Um, he, he he was doing that for sure. But what's happened is, even to leave the country, anyone I think aged between uh, I think eighteen and sixty, or it might be twenty-one and sixty-five, uh, needs gov- needs governmental sign-off, and that they need to get that every single month. So right. even between. September and October and October and November, there was this like I suppose one percent chance that at some point the Ukrainian government would just say, "Sorry, sorry, Shakhtar dinamo Kiev, actually, we've got a shortage of men. You're you're very in shape, man. We need you for the war effort." But th- I think they recognised the power, the publicity, the the visibility that could be had of Ukrainian clubs. I suppose going on tour around Europe and showing their best selves and and raising awareness of of what was going
0: on back home i I want to come on in a moment, Adam, to uh, practical questions if you like about yeah, the, impact, the impact of the infrastructure and finances but I, 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 one thing that really it generally affected me reading about the, and listening to you talk about they they got the youth team out very quickly yeah. didn 't they where Where are they now, and how are they coping and have they lost families it 's just There was a time last night when I had to, I literally had to stop researching because you, you, I kind of thought this is 2022 on the continent of Europe and, and they're they're smuggling kids out to get them to safety. It just beggared belief, really.
2: Yeah. And I I would, I would stress, you know, the, I'm hoping the sort of the podcast series as a whole, like there's some bits which are very, very distressing and
0: difficult because, you know, that is Just, what's,
2: that, it's I, what's happened, right? It's what's I, I, I'm happened.
0: I'm sorry, I, Adam, this was research I was doing around the podcast. I wanted to do as, as much research as possible, and this is stuff I was reading about, and that's what yeah. your, your your I would urge people to listen to your pod, because it is essentially upbeat and full of optimism for all the the harrowing stuff that you talk about. But the, the youth team thing was the one that really, yeah. really yeah. affected me.
2: So, so every sort of major football club in, in Europe now has an academy system um, with – Teenage with teenage boys, in an in increasing number of cases, teenage girls as well. And Shakhtar had different, uh, I suppose, youth systems across Ukraine. And when the war started, like so many families across Ukraine, many of them needed to escape. These kids needed to escape. But Shakhtar were also very keen, you know, as they tried to function as a football club for the next yeah. few years and very conscious that it might be very, very difficult to recruit foreign talent that they wanted to be able to continue also developing their own talent and they therefore made it a big priority to try and get sort of 50 to 100 boys out of ukraine and and into a safe place where they could continue to develop as footballers and in a in a secure environment and they were very fortunate their director of football dario Serna, as i said former croatia international has fantastic relations at had Juk split and as a result, they were able to move, um, you know, like I say, 50 to a hundred boys out of Ukraine into Croatia. And actually, I, I, I agree with you. I actually found the most distressing, um, moving parts of, of making this, um, was when my colleague, Joey Durso, um, who you probably know best on this podcast as the crypto, the crypto scammer yeah, yeah. boy, um, yeah or exposing crypto scammers uh, rather than being the crypto scammer. (laughs) Um, And he, he went out to Croatia to speak to some of these kids and to some of the Croatians who had taken them in, who were almost as extraordinary to listen to because they were talking about back when Croatia was going through bombings and refugees and their own memories of being those little boys that having, were, were having to be evacuated. Um, And, you know, on the one hand, these players in Split have everything they could possibly want because you've got the funding from from Shakhtar, you've got Hadjok Split helping out, they're staying in a hotel, they have food provided, they're playing football, UNICEF and humanitarian agencies, Red Cross have provided table tennis and all of this sort of stuff. And you're with your friends, but at the same time, they're not with their family, they're not at home, they're not with their school friends Um, A lot of them don't speak uh, Croatian or English. um, And even a lot of them actually don't speak Ukrainian because in certain parts of Ukraine, the people would speak Russian. Um, And it's now become like a very strong um, identity thing that, for example, the training sessions will be done in Ukrainian. So some some of the players are kind of learning like three or four languages at at the same time to get by. And then there's an incredibly moving moment where... So there was this guy uh, called Frane, a Croatian guy, um, and his job was to to look after uh, these young Ukrainian players. And there's a story that he tells about one evening going in to say goodnight to, to one of the young players. And he, he said he just walked in to find this this kid on, on FaceTime to his dad who was in army uniform somewhere on the front line. Um, and... At, and and Frane, the the Croatian guy, told the Ukrainian dad, you know, I am I'm his Croatian dad, you're his Ukra- you're his Ukrainian dad, and they almost gave him a, a hug over the phone. Um, and this little boy just kind of obviously looked very, very sad and and you know, just in need of support. So I suppose it just sort of shows that although it they are being treated very, very well in Croatia, at the same time, the sense of dislocation is is incredibly strong.
0: Well, also as well, I mean, they're, they're kids, Adam. They must be terrified every time the phone rings or every time they see one of the coaches walk towards them. They must have that thing in their head that they're about to be told bad news. Is must and it, it's going to this is going to affect them for the rest of their life as well, isn't
2: it? Absolutely, absolutely. And as a really good example of this, it wasn't actually kids, but when we were in um, Warsaw for the final Champions League game, uh, Leipzig against Shakhtar in Warsaw. Um, I was with a couple of female Ukrainian journalists and I specify female because as we said earlier, that a lot of the men aren't able to leave the country at the moment, which yeah. means that the only journalists who are traveling uh, with the team are, are female journalists. Um, and th- there was this sudden bang in the stadium. It was just like, you know, sometimes at football stadiums, you just yeah. get random noises. And I was sat next to the two of them and, and I've never seen two people jump wow. as as, as fast as they did in that moment and um Irina Kosyupa, who's one of the journalists we feature quite a lot in the podcast as a kind of recurring voice um was explaining to me that you just become so used to the idea that at any time of the day wherever you are there might just be a bang and you have to move and you have to run and that fight or flight um instinct kicks in and it, it, I found it incredibly pa- impactful just even in that very very safe environment just seeing how real that that natural response had become by them
0: it, it seems almost trite to make this link Adam but we are a football finance problem yeah we do like to concentrate on that wherever possible we we know that the team is still being funded but are, are the players being paid as much as they were before have they managed to keep the women's team going how is the infrastructure? In general, yeah, uh, payers are uh, sorry,
2: payers, players are being paid. Um, easy for me to say. Um, (laughs) their wage bill has been reduced pretty, pretty massively because in the summer, um, a lot of the club's foreign players left the club, um, around 14 or so, and they were probably the big earners. You know, it's the Brazilian players, um, on the whole, uh, their their coaching staff changed. Roberto de Zerbi. Um, has obviously ended up at Brighton, but he left in the summer. He'd have been earning more than the new Croatian coach, Igor Jovicovic, who to be fair has done a fantastic job, but he, I don't think he'll be earning as much as someone would deserve his reputation. So I think the wage bill has been trimmed. Um, the women's team continues to function. They've been playing games in in Kiev, and Lviv. They had a game, actually, if you remember, you remember in mid-October, the Crimea Bridge, there was the explosion. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And in response to that, uh there was this huge wave of attacks in Kiev um a couple of days later. And that was the first time for five or six months that um the first time for five or six months that that bombs had really landed on Kyiv, which had started to feel quite safe and normal again. And even at the end of that week, um Shakhtar's women's team played a game um in, in just outside Kyiv. Um that was even at a time where there were blackouts, there was uh Water shortages, electricity shortages. Um, they played that game. It was interrupted by an air raid alarm. So the women's team has kept going. They're very keen to keep that going. There are some women's teams, I think, that have stopped. So, for example, I think there was a team in Kharkiv, which has obviously become one of those places that we kind of know the name of yeah, because, because of the war, really. Um, but they had a really good women's team, and they're actually in the ch- the Women's Champions League either last season or the season before, and I just don't think they're playing at the moment um or this season so that you know there there is a an impact across the game and I think there's going to be a massive issue for Ukrainian clubs both men and women you know I think for one season you can kind of do it because it's all a novelty but it's going to be very very difficult for Sha- you know for even for a club like Shakhtar to keep their best Ukrainian players Right, like if you're someone like Mikhailo Mudrik, who's been a huge star in this season's Champions League, linked with Arsenal, linked with Man City, you know, there's only so long you can expect him to continue playing in behind closed doors football um, when he's got the talent that he has and that he can go and be an ambassador for the country and give visibility to the country outside of Ukraine and 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 actually that Shakhtar team from this Champions League uh, group stage. Yeah, you know, when they when they drew 1-1 with Real Madrid and came within about 10 seconds of beating them, mm. I think seven of the players on that night were aged 23 or below. Ten of them on the night were Ukrainian. Um, eight of them were from the Shakhtar youth system. You know, I think they're going to have a real job on their hands keeping hold of these players as they go along. And then it's a question of how do you rebuild that team because you can't really buy in foreign players because it's very difficult to attract them to a war zone. And you can talk about, okay, we're going to invest in academy infrastructure, but where is that academy infrastructure because they can't go home to Donetsk where all their best facilities are. Do you build something in Kiev or Lviv? But even that, you know, there is a threat every day that one strike might take it out, and it's a very difficult time to construct um, in Ukraine. So there's a lot of uncertainty.
0: I was going to ask you about Mudrik, who is mm. uh, he's this season's wonder boy for everybody. Uh, like you say, rumours that he's on his way to Arsenal, Man City. £60 million has been mentioned as a fee. He will be allowed to leave then, would he, if if, if a deal was done? Yeah, he will. Um,
2: I yeah. It's really interesting, though, when you listen to... So we did a lot of interviews with the club's CEO, uh, Sergei Palkin, Director of Football, Dario Serna, kind of each week throughout the, throughout the Champions League group stage. And I was joking with them last week because... By the end of the group stage, they were saying they believe he's now worth 100 million euros. Wow! And I was joking with Sergei saying, "Yeah, every every week he goes up 10, 15 million, depending <laughs> depending what he's done in the Champions League." And he's like, "And I said to him, I've got the actual voice notes proving that this price has gone up by 15 million, 20 million um, each time." What's fascinating is in the summer they had they were pretty close to an agreement with Brentford for around 25, 30 million. It just wow. didn't work out in the end with agent fees and all of that kind of stuff. And I think it was also really difficult at the time, if you remember, with international payments going in and out of Ukraine, that, that was one of the things yeah. that was complicating it. But like Schachtel would, I think, would have done that deal in May, June for 25, 30 million. Then towards the end of the window, that price started to go up. You had Everton come in, Leverkusen, and Shakhtar's position by then was, well, actually, if we feel like he's developing really well, and if he does well in the Champions League, that valuation, particularly in a group you know, with Real Madrid and Celtic and Leipzig, and the circumstances he'd be playing under, if he can excel, that valuation is going to really go up. And to be fair, like they played a blinder on it, because that's exactly what happened. I mean, he scored home and away against Celtic. If you've not seen the goal he scored at Celtic Park, it's, Fantastic. Like, it's an unbelievable goal.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, And scored one against Leipzig away, made two against Leipzig away. Was just like by far always the best player on the pitch from Shakhtar's perspective. Um, um, go on.
0: No, so I was going to say, it's, it's, it's completely different. So it, is Ukrainian football about to go into a winter break?
2: Yes. Yeah. So they, I think they play for like the first week of the World Cup, then it stops right um for the world cup and then there is a winter break as well they're going to do i think some charity friendly matches um around the united states uh which uh, to raise awareness and funding humanitarian causes etc um but just to just to finish up on mudrick you know i said you know where are you getting this 100 million euro figure from and they were pretty they were pretty clear and honest about it they said well it's not us deciding the price it's the market that's deciding the price because if you look at Jack Grealish, um, Anthony, Jaden Sancho, all yep. players who have gone for over €100 million Euros in the last 18 months in that kind of left-forward or right-forward position, and Shaq's view is, well, our guy's done more in the Champions League than any of these guys. Mm. Um, and therefore, if that's what clubs are prepared to pay, then that's absolutely fine. I, I think what's more likely is he'll probably go in the summer rather than January. Right. Um, just because that would be a way for Shakhtar to try and make sure they win their league. Domestically, there's still a couple of points off the top in Ukraine. I think if they can make sure they win the league, it means they get back into the Champions League next season, which means not only do they get the windfall from selling Modric, but it also means they get the Champions League money, easier to attract players, kind of virtuous cycle.
0: In terms of infrastructure, Adam, as you mentioned, I presume all the games are being played by daylight now because uh, floodlights are just not an option at the moment, are they?
2: Yes. Yeah, you're right. Or, so even like there was a midweek game that I, sp- I suppose it would have been like Shakhtar's equivalent, uh, Ukrainian football's equivalent of the Carabao Cup um, a couple of weeks ago. And that w- actually didn't occur to me at the time why it was being played on a, Thursday- on a like, Wednesday or Thursday at three in the afternoon. But that
0: absolutely must be the reason. Yeah. Are you away for helping financially? (laughs) Um, (laughs) That little chuckle would indicate the answer (laughs) to that is no. (laughs) Uh,
2: Not really. Um, No, I mean, you know, Shakhtar have taken care of all their own costs. Um, And, you know, I suppose on the one hand you would say, well, you're owned by a billionaire. Right. Does it does it make sense? You know, there's clubs all around Europe that are in difficult financial situations for different reasons. Obviously, non as I, I do think Shakhtar's story is particularly unique. Like, There's very few clubs competing in UEFA competitions who literally can't go to their home stadium um, and who are constantly on the move. I, I think the club were pretty, were pretty positive about the UEFA president, Alexander Sheffrin, in terms of what he's done for Ukraine, in terms of U, UEFA's overall response, in terms of moving the Champions League final, getting rid of Gazprom, Um all, all of that kind of stuff, I think the relationship with FIFA is very, very different to that of UEFA.
0: Well, I was about to ask you that very question because it's slightly confusing. There's a legal dispute with FIFA going on, but in the research I was doing yesterday, I couldn't quite pin down what the actual reason was because there were several sources giving different reasons for the legal dispute. One was claiming it was because of FIFA's attitude to Russia in general. Another was saying it's because of the the way foreign players were allowed to leave so quickly so can you give us an insight into what's going on and what sort of financial compensation is being sought by ukrainian football yes yeah and this is something this whole relationship
2: between ukraine and fifa is like almost the sole focus of the third episode of our series and but what they where this all started was in uh february when the full invasion began with the ukrainian league immediately pausing there was an understandable desire on the on behalf of agents and players that uh foreign players and coaches both in Russia and Ukraine should be able uh to go and play elsewhere if they wish for the rest of that season so that kind of made sense for the ukrainian clubs at the time because it means their players go and keep fit go and trek go and play somewhere else go and be safe absolutely fine no one had an issue with that So, for example, Shakhtar had a Brazilian forward called Tete. He went out on loan to play um, at at the French club Lyon. And that kind of worked for everyone. In the summer, when the Ukrainian league decided it was going to resume, Shakhtar then have like 14 foreign players all registered to their club, all contracted still to the club for a couple of years more. And that's where the issue started because, understandably, the players players were saying well we don't want to go back to a war zone you can't force us to go back to a war zone and Shakhtar themselves were saying we don't we don't expect you to but what we do want to be able to do is sell players for cash and 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 recuperate some of the value that we've invested into you in the first place some of the profit that we that we would have forecasted we'd been able to make on some of these players what happened was fifa made a regulation on the 21st of june this year and that regulation said that all, player, all foreign players in Ukraine would be able to unilaterally suspend their contracts for a further year, so i.e. for the entirety of this coming season, mm. um, unless a deal could be struck between Shakhtar and different clubs by the 30th of June this year. So that sounds very complicated. To simplify it, it gave Shakhtar nine days to do deals for 14 foreign players. Right. right, And the clubs across Europe all knew they could just wait nine days and take the player for free on loan for a season. And this then became a further issue because for a lot of the players, they only had a couple of years left on their contract. So it would mean that when the players were returning to Shakhtar next year, they'd only have six months to go and therefore the, their value has all but disappeared. So that's that was the root of the legal battle. And Shakhtar's submission so the Court of Arbitration for Sport says that they missed, they had deals in place for at least four players at a value of a total of around €50 million Euros that were kind of preliminary agreements that just couldn't be completed in the timeframe. So, for example, Shakhtar actually stated that they had uh, an agreement made with Fulham for the Israeli international Manor Solomon for €7.5 million. Euros. Then as soon as FIFA's regulations dropped... Fulham got back in touch and said, "Well, because of this regulation, we're not we're no longer going to, to going to do the agreement that that we were initially suggesting. Therefore, we're going to take the player on loan for a season." And Shakhtar's position isn't that Fulham have done anything wrong, because you know why would you pay seven and a half million out of the goodness of your heart when you can take a player for free? Um, their issue was with FIFA, and their issue was basically saying these regulations have unfairly penalized us and they made they say they made repeated attempts you know to settle out of court to uh to work with fifa and fifa's position publicly has always been you know we've uh actively consulted with ukrainian stakeholders um, throughout all this process becoming up with before coming up with these regulations and shaktar simply say this is not true yeah. That they consulted with these Ukrainian stakeholders, and then went back to FIFA and said, "Well, Shakhtar I say that's not true, and the Ukrainian FA say that's not true," and FIFA didn't respond to that. So make your own
0: conclusion. Uh, well, Kieran and I have already concluded uh, what we think about FIFA long ago. The, <laughs> week, the week after we started this pod, we it, let's let's just say that they're not our favourite people. And also last week, we saw the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian FA unhappy with fifa's response to iran you know because a lot of the drones that are being used to attack uh, ukrainian cities are apparently we're told either manufactured in iran or are being operated by iranian uh, military personnel and they want sanctions against iran from fifa which fifa have no interest in doing it seems
2: yeah and, and and this is super interesting because in many ways it's the logical extension of what happened earlier in the year because if FIFA has basically decided that a country should be banned or, or a, a member should be banned from competing in their tournaments because it's facing international sanctions, condemnation from the international community, it's you know bombing its neighbours, then why, why is Iran actually that different from Russia, right? Just because it is it just that it's like the junior aggressor in this situation. That, that's the argument of the Ukrainian federation. They were, they were kind of triggered into this because in September, Russia as a federal football federation remain a member of FIFA and uh, Ukrainian federation say that they shouldn't even be allowed to be a member of FIFA yeah. in, in, in the current position, but because they are a member of FIFA, it means they can order, they can organize uh, official friendly matches under the FIFA, under the FIFA badge. And what Russia are currently doing is basically just doing friendly matches with rogue states. So they, they did a friendly with Kyrgyzstan a few weeks ago, and they also made this preliminary agreement, uh, which the Russian FA com- confirmed to me, that that they would play a friendly match against Iran. Um wow. And the discussions about this—I don't think they settled on a date in the end, but it, it was at one point going to be happening as like a World Cup warm-up game for Iran, and the Ukrainians were basically just like, this is, it's like the ultimate trolling, right? (laughs) And (laughs)
0: it's just like the Russian, it's it's like those
2: Russian, you know, those Russian ambassador accounts on Twitter that are just like relentlessly trolling people. It's like, oh, Russia and Iran will have a friendly game because we get on with each other politically. So that was one of the things that triggered it. The other controversy is around the fact that FIFA have maintained their television deal with Russian state owned uh, TV station, Match TV. If you remember earlier in the year, the English Premier League had its own sort of six-year, I think 43 million pound deal with Match TV, uh, which was a station itself decreed to open by Putin several years ago. And the the Ukrainians have been lobbying sort of countries across Europe, international organisations saying, you know, everyone's stopping to do business with Russia and Russian organisations, or most most organisations are at least, and therefore, why is FIFA maintaining this? I think it's worth 39 million euros. The deal was agreed in 2019 to show this year's World Cup in Qatar. And the Ukrainian position is, look, FIFA have $1 billion, 1.6 billion US mm-hmm. dollars in cash reserves alone. Could you not take our side on this issue rather than allowing Russia to continue to have the rights to this World Cup? Um, but I think, you know, ultimately we know that the FIFA president Gianni Infantino has a pretty has at least historically a pretty good relationship with Vladimir Putin you know had the was it the medal that he received at the Kremlin in 2019 the 2018 World Cup was hosted in Russia four years after Shakhtar Donetsk were forced out of their home I think that's one of those things making this series where I was like you know shit we just did not we just didn't talk about that, did we? In the UK, like you know, we were talking about Skripal, uh, yeah. we were talking about Putin's aggression generally, but no one was really talking about. You know, four years ago they annexed Crimea, and therefore, doesn't it seem a bit crazy that we're letting them host a World Cup four years later? It was actually one of the things talking to some of those female journalists who told me that you know there were newspapers and TV stations in Ukraine in 2018 that just completely
0: boycotted the World Cup in Russia.
2: I had no idea that happened. No,
0: no, no, no. it's um, well, I, the, the fact that Sepp Blatter yesterday said he regretted the World Cup going to Qatar but not to Russia says a lot. And also, it takes only the most cursory Google search uh, of Gianni Infantino and images. Uh, a lot of them are with his arm around Putin or handing the World Cup to Putin. So that is a slight yeah. area. Because how difficult should... was it? Sorry, how difficult was it to communicate with the Russian FA? You said that they they confirmed some details with you. Were mm-hmm. they were they open and cooperative to to you? I just sent a WhatsApp and they replied really? to me.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I'd love <laughs> I'd love to say it was um like you know so maybe my our security team will kill me for this um but there was um yeah no it wasn't like sort of secret messaging or anything like that. No, I just sent a message to their press officer and he replied. Um, so, so it was quite it was quite.
0: It was disappointingly straightforward. (laughs) It is a bit disappointing. I'm also disappointed that you've got – why haven't we got a security team on this pod? I'm going to demand the security (laughs) team. Um, I've got – Adam, I've got so many questions, but I'm conscious that this is already a long interview, and I want people to listen to your pod rather than listen to me talking about the pod. But I've got two questions to ask you to finish, and this one should perhaps have been the first question, but I wanted to hear what you had to say about your experience before I asked it, why did you want to do this pod? And why did Shakhtar want you to do it? Mm. So we first did a report with some of Shakhtar's players
2: when, when the fun invasion started in in February this year. And I, I remember interviewing uh, Tara Stepanenko, who's their captain. And he's actually this is actually the first thing, because we kept the audio from this interview from back in March by more out of... Uh, Chance and luck than great planning, and the first thing you hear is him with his kids in the background, and they're at the time they're his his wife, his kids just outside Kiev, and they're sleeping underground um they're sleeping in a you know in a bomb shelter, you know he was telling me he's got a baseball bat um his neighbor has a gun, neither of them have ever used a gun, but they would interchange going up to like the balcony to to keep watch as to like whether any Jeez. Russians were coming through the forest and they would like alternate sort of one hour sittings while their wife and kids were underground so that that interview kind of stayed with me and um after we we published that interview back in March the uh communications officer of, of Shakhtar Yuri Sviridov sent me a text message just to say it's can I swear on this podcast of course yeah yeah uh, he, he said to me, Adam, it's a fucking nightmare out here. Please don't stop reporting about us until the war is over. And that kind of stays with you a little bit yeah, because yeah. European football press officers generally don't ask you to do reporting about their, <laughs> about no, their club. No. Um, and it kind of underlined the desperation, really. Um, and then when, the champ- when, we knew, when we saw they were coming back to the Champions League, um, we've always at The Athletic wanted to do a kind of fly on the wall podcast series, anyway, with a club competing in the European Champions in the so in the UEFA Champions League group stages, anyway. And this one just made total sense from our point of view in terms of you know how do you how on earth do you run a football club when you're when you can't go home when you're being bombed when you can't even play your home matches in your own country? Just from a narrative point of view, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, you know, also. You know, they gave us access to stuff like the team talks and tactics and uh, tactics meetings and uh mealtime and traveling with them and stuff like that. So all of that kind of stuff was going to be fascinating from our perspective. And I think from their point of view, it's it's as I've said a few times, it's they recognize the, the value of sport um as a way to engage different audiences to make the story more relatable at a time where you know, unfortunately, I think the reality of wars is that people get a bit of fatigue, don't they? Yeah, you know, when when it's February, March, and the bombs are dropping on a European capital for the first time, you know, the BBC have... Every, obviously, the BBC have continued to cover it incredibly well, yeah. but I mean, you know, like, news at 10 yeah, every course, night would be, from, would, would be from Ukraine. Everyone had huge crews out there. And over time, that interest, that engagement starts to drop a little bit. Some people even become... A bit tired of it, and start saying, "Why aren't yeah. you talking about this war and that war yeah, and that war?" Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. Right? And I think Shakhtar recognised that one, it would engage a different audience. Two, you know, if you bring together Champions League, the war, the political situation, it's an interesting thing. And 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 they were really open to it. You know, I, I should say, like you know, they requested zero control over what's being put out. The only the only thing that they saw in advance was they they actually because um we obviously aren't champions league rights holders um so we we wouldn't be allowed to go into the dressing room um yeah ourselves to film so the club the club themselves as part of their own footage uh, had some footage from the dressing room that enabled us to use that as team t- uh, for the team talk so that's the only thing that they'd seen in advance but even that if you've seen the video trailer that we put out yesterday it's got, you know, the captain kind of effing and jeffing away. So there was nothing they did that kind of took away from uh, the experience at all. And and, and the access was fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, any other clubs uh, who aren't at war, who would like to offer that kind of access would be gratefully
0: received. (laughs) That image, Adam, of a young footballer sitting on his balcony, waiting for the Russian army to arrive with a baseball bat, Mm. It is both heroic and heartbreaking. I mean, that's just—it's impossible to imagine. It's mental. What the, it's, it's mental. It's, right? it's just—it's. I mean, I'm a—I'm I'm an intelligent person. I've got a very good imagination. I, I, I struggle to get my head around it. it, it it's diff- This is a football finance pod, Adam. So upbeat and optimistic are not words that we get to use <laughs> very often. Is—is is it possible to end this pod, this interview? on an upbeat mode is there any mood of optimism at all do they do they know in their heart of hearts that they will return to the next one day or 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 is it just a weariness now that's settled on them and they think this will never end no there was definitely
2: moments of weariness but i actually one of the because the, the title of the podcast series is away from home it dawned on us that the final episode should actually try and answer can they ever go home yeah um and do they want to go home? Because when you've not been there for ten years, like it's probably quite traumatic to fair point, yeah, yeah. To, to try and go home. And I, I put it to several, you know, to players, to board members, to all different people at the club, sort of across the series. You know, you've not been home now for eight years. The, the club this season, in particular, has become like an emblem of Ukraine, rather than Donetsk specifically. It's yeah. probably fair to say. You know, would it be so bad to become Shakhtar Kiev, for example? Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, their response to that was that it was pretty blasphemous for me to <laughs> even suggest that you know that, that they that they never go back to to Donetsk. But you know, when yeah. we you know we speak to a couple of um, there's a uh, an expert, Samir Puri, who has written actually actually written a really good book recently called Russia's Road to U- to the War with Let me get that right Russia's Road to War with Ukraine. And he has previously been in Donetsk in 2014 15 as part of ceasefire monitoring missions. Uh, And his view is that while Zelensky at the moment is saying a lot of things like, you know, we want to recapture the whole of Ukraine, all of these occupied territories, we're going to get them all back. Samir Puri's view is more, you know, it's one thing getting making sure that Kiev is secure and Kharkiv is secure, it's a whole other. Several years more fighting required, and a hell of a lot of casualties yeah. to make sure that Donetsk is fully Ukrainian, Luhansk is fully Ukrainian, um, and and his view is the reality is that Shakhtar may never go, may never go home. The club themselves, it, their their view is far more optimistic. You know, their CEO was saying he's got friends who are already saying they're going to have like their sixty fifth birthday celebrations at the Donbass Arena in Donetsk. Um, Yuri Spiridov, their communications officer, he actually ends the series, you know, with quite a stirring, stirring interview saying, you know, we will know this war is over when it's Shakhtar Donetsk against Dynamo Kiev in uh, Donetsk, surrounded by Ukrainians who are fully sympathetic to the Ukrainian cause, and he says, you know, I hope I'll be there, he said, I hope you'll be there, I hope everyone who's listening will be there, and so yeah, I mean, that hope and ambition is still there but there's probably a kind of sad cynical realistic part of anyone i think who
0: will listen and think i'm not sure you just as a football fan you long for that glorious day when they can just go home and get back to the everyday business of shouting abuse at other clubs and taking the piss out of them right totally which is what football's adam um this is probably the longest interview we've ever done for this podcast oh god i'm sorry no 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 not at all it's worth it's worth every minute and i'm I'm sure our listeners will agree just remind them where they can listen to the podcast adam yes so
2: the podcast is called away from home it's produced by the athletic if you're an athletic subscriber you can listen to it on the app if not um it's available to everyone um via wherever you get your podcasts so spotify apple
0: google podcasts uh all the usual places Adam, wish you the very best of luck with that. I'm sure uh, it's it's brilliant. What I've heard so far, is, it's fantastic. It's uh, it, it's important as, as well, basically. It's the sort of thing people should be listening to. Um, thank you for talking to us. Um, all the best in the future.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: I don't really know where to start, Kieran, really. It's, we could take as long again to... To comment on what he told us, that you know, I think the biggest takeaway is that FIFA, yet again, every story you hear in modern football just indicates that FIFA needs replacing, doesn't it? It Needs they're just not fit for purpose, really, are they?
1: It seems to me. You're absolutely right. Um, the the, the lack of willingness of Infantino, uh, Jenny Infantino, for those people that aren't aware, the uh. A recent resident of Qatar, by the way, <laughs> yeah. pure coincidence. I'm yeah. sure, pure coincidence. Um, FIFA effectively had to have its arm twisted in relation to to many of the issues that, that we've seen in Ukraine, um, and I think Adam um, and his team have put together. Uh, okay, I'll be honest. It's not a laugh a minute show. You know, yeah, but, but then it's not a laugh a minute subject. Yeah, you know, we, we've got we've got a war taking place, and yeah, you know, we we. We try to find levity and frivolity uh, in in many of the uh, many of the stories that we cover, but this was, uh, you know, when I listened to to the reports coming back, you you want to have pride in your country and football, and Chakhtar Donets are providing that. They're providing a light uh, in the country which is going through some really hard times, and uh, you know, fair play to. Adam, because it's, I, I think it's, it's an award-winning show that he's put on. It was that good. It's, it's, that thorough. It's, it's, it shows what good investigative journalism and caring about something can do. So it was, it's, it's pretty moving stuff. Um, and just on the back of that story, I, I know uh, I had a bit of a moan um, a couple of weeks ago about the uh, sale proceeds from Chelsea Football Club. Um, fair play to one of our listeners they wrote to their mp and said uh, you know what's going on and the very depressing response was yes the government the government's put the money into a separate bank account and in due course we will be distributing the money to humanitarian causes in ukraine well in due course isn't good enough no it's because not because people are dying now people are now going short of water um help is needed today and uh, you know solicitors, uh, administrators, civil servants, politicians sitting around saying, well, yeah, none of that money's gone to uh, Roman Abramovich. What a great achievement of ours. That That's simply not good enough. Mm.
0: Thank you to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution to the pod, that would be very kind of you. Please go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. We'll be back on Monday with that questions pod. In the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Uh,
1: thanks, as always, folks. Um, and we are we are getting really excited uh, because uh, Kevin's getting excited because it's getting closer to Christmas. Um, hey. And I'm getting so excited because, <laughs> because uh, we're recording this on Wednesday morning and I'm going to the Emirates tonight to see... To, to see the <laughs> third round of the league cup and that's that's proper football is it and then you ask you know when the trains are we delayed and I'm going, why on earth am I doing this um but uh, if you want to support the show patrons one way and we really appreciate uh or everything that you, you do for us by that route another way is to uh is, is to go onto your podcast app and 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 to throw us a few stars, yeah. You know, episode three hundred, we 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 have put together a lot of uh, uh, a, a lot of stories. Um, yeah, you know, of those three hundred, probably two two good story, yeah, you know, two happy stories in all of that. Um, but it, uh, if, you, if you give us five stars, that we'd, we'd really appreciate it. Um, it. It doesn't matter what you say in the review. You could even say you'd rather have the uh, the show presented by Janny Infantino. And Lord Haw Haw, and it wouldn't make a blind <laughs> bit of difference to us.
0: You know who I want to uh, introduce, uh, Pod Three Hundred and One, Kieran, is the Prowler, and just in passing. <laughs> <laughs> bye, everybody. Uh, uh, uh,
1: bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'll for football.